3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and you are listening to 3CR 855 AM. How are you all doing this morning? Morning, Rob. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I can tell we are both quite tired. (laughs) I've only actually had about three hours of sleep, so... uh, But I think I'm... Mm. Holding well at the moment, mm. so that's good. Apologies, listeners. Every time we, <laughs> it seems every time we go to air, we're always just talking about how tired we are. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's a Monday, everyone. Yeah. No one has a great start to a Monday. Yeah, 7 a.m. on a Monday. Exactly. Um, yeah, so yeah, today's just here, us here, both uh, me and Rob. James is away at the moment, just, yep, taking a break, but yep, they are good, so yeah, we will catch them again next week so mm. don't worry about that listeners out there so yeah how was your weekend actually um yeah good good grace not a whole lot to report um yeah i actually can't think of anything <laughs> that i did <laughs> it's all good uh yeah you? i felt like i was just um i was kind of really taking a break last week i felt like because yeah. it was my first actual week where like i don't have any uni related stuff anymore like even yeah. though i finished uni three weeks ago but then like i technically said assignments i had to kind of deal with yeah for like the final submission so wow. that was like my first actual week where like i wasn't doing anything yeah uh, wow yeah th- but then like i was still kind of busy i felt like because on monday i had to like help my dad move some stuff from mm. like our old house yep. so it was a lot of things to carry i was very tired there yeah but yeah it's all good so yeah that had, was basically my week i had a pretty big week too like i had to take my cat to the vet on tuesday and he's all right just a little bit of a dramatic scare pretty oh. scary and then uh coincidentally my uh apartment is being uh cleaned well it had to be cleaned because we had mold on the walls so we had to take my cat to the vet and then move all of the furniture in my apartment one meter away from the walls, oh. which is <laughs> really annoying. <laughs> That's um, a bit harsh. So <laughs> me and my partner were just like, purely from those like tw- that 12-hour like situation, we were just wrecked for the whole week after that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, let's jump into headline, shall we? Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, so just just to start off, we're just going to be announcing regarding a rally that's happening today. So on at 4pm, starting 4pm today until 6pm, it's a rally held by the health, healthcare workers. This is, sorry, this is the um, this is uh, healthcare workers for Palestine, where they're calling a snap action against the targeting of hospitals and the escalating genocide unfolding in Palestine. It mm-hmm. is going to be located at the level reserve at Parkville so you can hit there at 4pm till 6pm today, uh, later this afternoon Mm. and yep you'll be joined by the healthcare workers for Palestine over there 
Uh, in regards to the situation at the moment at Gaza, the death toll has already risen up to 13,000 people, according to the health ministry. The According to the Guardian, World Health Organization has hailed Al-Shifa Hospital healthcare workers as heroic amid the death zone. The, the World Health Organization led a second assessment as they visited the Al-Shifa Hospital yesterday and they commended the healthcare personnel working in Gaza's largest hospital where World Health Organization has declared it as a death zone. The World Food Program is currently working alongside the emergency telecommunications cluster to establish independent communication systems across Gaza amidst the constant frequent blackouts by Israel. Wow. The following headline may be distressing for listeners. A survey survey undertaken by the University of New South Wales found 9.4% of Australian men said they had sexually abused a child. Described as the largest study of its kind globally, 1,945 Australian men were surveyed. 4.3% of those reported to have had online sexual conversations with children and a further 2.5% deliberately watched pornographic material containing people below the age of 18. The study also found 15.1% or 1 in 6 men had sexual feelings towards children under 18. Its findings add more data to groundbreaking groundbreaking research published in April which found 23.7% of Australians had experienced child sexual abuse, with around 8.7% being forced into sex. If you need information, support or counselling regarding sexual violence, please call 1-800-RESPECT. Alternatively, you can reach out to Stop It Now, which offers a non-judgmental service for those concerned about their own or other people's thoughts or behaviours towards children. You can reach them at 1-800-01-1800 or via their anonymous live chat at stopitnow.org.au. And after years of long battle, a proposed redevelopment of the 53-year-old Preston Market in Melbourne has come to an end after an announcement that the storeholders would all be offered a five-year leases. So the traders were actually told in May that their leases would not be renewed before uh, beyond January when the billionaire private developers who own the site... Uh, who are known as Salta Properties, claimed that a new building restriction proposed by Planning Minister Sonia Kilkenny in effort to protect the market would make the market no longer viable. And the, go- the government planning protections were confirmed in August. So actually the stallers waited to find out what their landlords would do with their leases. And just on Tuesday last week, they received a letter from Salta Properties Director Sam Tarasio, which confirmed their leases would be renewed after years of uncertainty. Wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's really good news. Yes, and actually, the, the Safe Preston Market, actually, uh, they have an action group which have been campaigning for this since 2021. Mm. So yeah, it's been a very long battle. So really good news for mm. Preston Congratulations Market. to them. And congratulations to anybody who attends Preston Market. Yes. I haven't actually been there. I do want to go there one day. Oh my god, you should go, Grace. Really? Uh, <laughs> I have no. I literally like my. It's, it's Preston is actually so near my uni. Yeah. But I haven't gone there actually for at all. I haven't had the chance to. I really hope to go. Now you that you need to go to Tammy's. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Well, I will go for that. I will try. Make sure that I'll be there. Yep. So we're gonna jump to a song now.
This is called To Be Loved by Gran Huaha. annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. 
Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and that lovely song just now was To Be Loved by Gwen Huaha. So now we're going to be going to a short conversation. This is an excerpt of a longer conversation from the host of Yena Prasarin, who was chatting to journalist Brandy Butchman about covering the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. So yeah, let's take a listen. We are joined by Brandy Buckman, who is a journalist with lawandcrime.com and who has been covering the J6 trials extensively. Thanks for joining us, Brandy. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how you found yourself on the J6 beat? So I actually started out covering the White House and Congress when Trump came into office. And I was assigned to cover the certification of the vote on January 6th. I was down there that morning with a colleague of mine, and we had expected it would be a very long day because we knew that there was going to be a lot of objections. And that was pretty much the beginning of the rest of my, uh, well, the next three years anyway, that I've been spending covering on the January 6th beat. So it's been pretty much nonstop ever since that day. So. We had this situation. There was a little bit of light treason. Subsequently, there have been a number of trials in relation to seditious conspiracy. Maybe just to establish ourselves, what was the seditious conspiracy charge that was levelled against people from groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? Sure. Yeah. So there are quite literally more than a thousand January 6th defendants. And of the thousand January 6th defendants that have either pled out or gone to trial or they've been arrested, the folks who committed seditious conspiracy were specifically central to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Both of those organizations have roots in fascism. Both of them have roots in racism, misogyny, um, all the rest. And essentially, these two groups, while they did not work necessarily in concert together, they both had similar goals on January 6th, and they both went about achieving them in their own means. And for the United States, seditious conspiracy just essentially says that you have tried to use force to stop the transfer of power or to stop the authority of the federal government here. So of everybody that stormed the Capitol that day, these folks, I think, by by and large, had had it in their mind that there was something more to do there than to protest or just kind of get pissed off for a day. Now, our listeners are hopefully across the Proud Boys, but could you maybe tell us a little bit about who the Oath Keepers are and who was Stuart Rhodes, their leader? Yeah, the Oath Keepers are a group that started, I believe it was back in 2009. And it, it's essentially like this. There are a lot of folks who join that organization who are U.S. veterans, military veterans, police officers, they, a lot of folks who are law enforcement who really felt like they wanted to, in the beginning anyway, they wanted to sort of be more a part of their community. They wanted to help people who were in need, like Hurricane Katrina here uh, in Louisiana. They'll, they'll do kind of outreach stuff like that at the beginning of the organization. 
But sort of as time went on, the Oath Keepers as a group that sort of vowed to uphold the Constitution and vowed to protect all of our laws against any anyone, including people domestically who might break them, they sort of became increasingly radicalized and increasingly antagonistic of groups like Black Lives Matter, groups, groups in the United States or people who associate with Antifa. And it really became for them about becoming this like, private vigilante law enforcement squad where they would go to towns, especially in 2020 in America, where they would go to cities and they would help enforce quote unquote law and order. Whereas in a lot of the time, the actual police in these communities didn't even want them there. So this is the kind of cosplaying that we have going on. And then the gentleman who is in charge or was in charge of the Oath Keepers and is now in prison in Maryland, I believe, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, he is a very interesting character. He was Yale educated. He worked for a member of Congress. He's clerked for some important people. He's a very well-read. He's very well-spoken. He, I could see certainly where he's a charming individual, but he goes very hard into the camp of, I think, xenophobia, racism, and all the rest. He would deny that, but I think that actions speak louder than words in his case. Brandy Stewart's found himself in quite a bit of trouble following January 6. Can you describe what's happened to Stewart and to the Oath Keepers generally in the wake of the cases that have been brought against them? Yeah, I mean, the Oath Keepers were sort of hobbling on a on a very delicate balance by the time January 6th had rolled around. They were hemorrhaging money. There was a lot of infighting going on among leadership. Rhodes was increasingly uh, unpopular among people who were around with the organization from the beginning because he was sort of bringing in this violent sort of element. And Rhodes's role in leading what jurors here found to be a seditious conspiracy to stop the transfer of power and to try to keep Trump in office, it was it was instrumental in really kind of destroying that organization and upending it all together. Now he's doing 18 years in prison. He has appealed his sentence. He has appealed the verdict. I think that he has a very tough uphill battle to overcome that if Donald Trump does not become president again here in the United States, or if someone just like him does not become president in the United States. Brandy, you made reference to law and order being an animating, I guess, vision for people who took part in the insurrection, the failed insurrection. There may not have been a sufficient amount of law and order present on the day on January 6th. Can you speak to what actually happened and what was the role of the police in policing this event the thing with the Oath Keepers in January 6th and the discussion of law and order is the Oath Keepers did not go to D.C. on January 6th because they wanted to keep the rabble at bay or because they wanted to protect Trump supporters, which is what they argued in court. What they what they came to D.C. to do was they believed that there was a good chance Donald Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act, a piece of legislation here that essentially says if the government feels the need to, if there's an emergency, they can raise up they can raise up a small military, they can raise up a militia to help them. And Rhodes went to great lengths to try and contact the White House. He published several open letters begging for the Trump administration to invoke the Insurrection Act. And I believe he was under the impression that that was what was going to happen all the way up until January 6th. And so when he came there with several Oath Keepers with him, 
they had stashed a ton of guns in a hotel about 10, 15 minutes across the water from D.C., across our Potomac River here. Mm-hmm. And the plan, more or less, was when they were called up, if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act or if they felt they had to take law into their own hands and take over the Capitol, they would have an arsenal of weapons to do it. And there was a gentleman who testified, who was an oath keeper, who's also former military, who told the jury that when he walked into the hotel room and he saw the number of guns that were present there, it was more than any he had seen in his time at the arsenals when he was in the military. So, I mean, it was they their idea of law and order is a very cloudy, cloudy concept. And, you know, what they set out to do that day, I think a realistic person would look at that and say, that's stupid. And that's not a very credible thing to try and do. And even with all these guns, you're in the nation's capital. You're not you're not going to have much success. That's how delusional I think they were. I thought it was interesting. You recently reported on another case involving a J6 writer, a former police officer, Thomas Roberts. And what I thought was interesting about that was that he's attempting to appeal his conviction on the basis that he was convicted of corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. And his argument is it's not corrupt if you believe that you're doing the right thing, which could open up a whole new world of precedent in terms of uh, good intentions. Yeah, that's a really, it's an interesting case. And he's not really had much luck yet trying to convince the judges that the language in the statute means what it means. Essentially, his argument is that I wasn't acting with corrupt intent when I came to the Capitol and I stormed it and I was armed. I I, I came to this area because I wanted to do something that was legitimate. I wanted to protest. And so there's an interesting question around, well, how can you prove someone's corrupt intent? And usually we have to look at what they say and what they do. And so when the judges looked and looked at what he said and what he did, and they looked at just the plain definition of the word corrupt to, to act in a way it's surreptitiously, essentially, that you're trying to get a benefit for yourself that maybe you would not otherwise. And it's a really it's been very interesting listening to so many of these January 6th defendants and so many of their lawyers try to argue semantics. But a lot of the law in the United States, I, I fear, unfortunately, is is around semantics. So in terms of the defendants, Brandy, the crowd has been characterized as being uh, overwhelmingly white and uh, male. What can you say about those who found themselves before the courts on charges? Who, who are these people who are have found themselves in this situation? I mean, it, it is over. It is overwhelmingly white and male. That's not to say that there are not individuals who are of color or are not white or male. There's certain, certainly been women who have come through. There's Henry Enrique Tario, who's the leader of the Proud Boys, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy, and he got the stiffest sentence yet, incidentally, of 22 years. He is Afro-Cuban. So there's certainly some diversity, but overwhelmingly what we had, and this is always something that I sort of think about when I think about January 6th and the response to it, what we had was a lot of white male grievance on steroids that day. And as a reporter who had covered the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, who covered the George Floyd protests in 2020, I... I have seen how protesters are treated in my town, in D.C. I I could almost say without a shadow of a doubt, if it would have been a very large group of people of color who stormed the Capitol like that, it would not have gone as far as it would have gone. And I know that for some that might be an, an unpopular opinion here in America, but I mean, we saw that they had the National Guard out 
on the steps of the Capitol when we had BLM protests going on here, when there were uh, racial justice protests going on here. And just wasn't wasn't the case on January 6th. And there was plenty of writing on the wall about what was coming. So it's, it was all a little bit jarring to see just how lopsided that was. You mentioned Henry Tarrio's sentence was the highest of any of these seditious conspiracy cases. How did he end up with this high sentence, given that he actually wasn't even present on the day? Yeah. So the thing with Tario is that as the leader of the Proud Boys, the judge and the jury, the evidence, the way the prosecution presented it, the Proud Boys are a particularly violent group. And what we saw in the communications in court was just how violent they were. And with Tario specifically, how he did not disavow it. He didn't try to turn the temperature down while the rioting was going on. He egged it on. He took credit for it. He, he said, we did this in a text message to another Proud Boy who also pled guilty for to seditious conspiracy. And I think for Tario, he didn't legally to be convicted and to be found guilty of the seditious conspiracy charge, it was not necessary for the government to prove that there was this drawn out plan. Everything was highly detailed. It could be implied. There wasn't a necessary factor of being there that was required either. It was simply that as the head of that organization, as the person who set up all of these private back channels, particularly who set up this back channel that the Proud Boys had called the Ministry of Self-Defense, which was targeting things for, for January 6th and was a particularly limited to members of the organization who were violent or who were willing to to employ violence. I think that the judge sort of understood that it didn't matter whether or not Tario would have been there on the grounds. He had no problems orchestrating it. And the last thing I'll say on that point, too, is that there's a reason why Tario wasn't at the Capitol that day. He was allegedly tipped off. I say allegedly because the police officer that tipped him off has yet to go to trial. But as far as Tario goes, we know that Tario did receive information saying that he would be arrested if he came to D.C. And so he sort of understood that if he came to D.C., he would get arrested. He would have an alibi. As another documentarian put it, he took himself off the battlefield that day in order to give himself an out. And I think that that with all of the things that we learned at trial, that was the accurate assessment of what happened. Uh, Brandy, Trump famously called upon the Proud Boys prior to the insurrection to stand back and stand by. They took action on January the 6th. What's the relationship or what has been the relationship between Trump and the Proud Boys and how is that expressed now in 2023? The relationship, I think, is one of convenience, much like everything I feel in Donald Trump's world. When the Proud Boys were being sentenced in court, a lot of them would say, oh, I don't want anything to do with politics, and Donald Trump led me down the road of ruin, and all the rest, and we're a scapegoat for Donald Trump because he will never be prosecuted. That's all we ever heard was how how horrible Donald Trump was. And then when they got convicted, and they were done being sentenced, and reality sunk in, and they were on their way to prison... It was a different story. It was, oh, only Donald Trump can save me. I'm going to get a pardon from Donald Trump. America has to reelect Donald Trump. This is what Tario was saying. This is what Biggs, Joseph Biggs, another proud boy, Ethan Nordine, another proud boy who was uh, charged and convicted. They will come to his side, I think, 
so long as it's convenient for them to come to his side. And I think that Trump knows that he can activate essentially just with his words, groups of people in the United States that will prompt chaos, will foment, will foment chaos in his name. I, I I don't think that that relationship is completely done, even though I will say the Proud Boys as an organization themselves pretty well pretty well hurt by this but we see now that they're sort of branching out into other things and there's other groups right-wing extremist groups in the United States that are now sort of glomming on to culture war issues and using that as a as a means to sort of be violent i mean in the mob it's one thing if you're to pledge fealty on your way to jail but if you actually went against the family in the courtroom it's generally not looked upon too kindly do you think trump will reward the disloyalty with pardons or do you think they are off the table now I think, I don't know if Donald Trump knows what loyalty really is. I think that Donald Trump knows what works for him in the moment. And I think so long as he feels that there's some sort of benefit in it for him to to pardon anybody, if he thinks it'll score him political points, if, if he thinks it will score him more votes, I think he would say and do anything. I, I don't think any of those guys, the Oath Keepers or otherwise, it's it's interesting I think a lot of these guys believe that they were a lot more important than they actually were and that they were actually on the level with somebody like Donald Trump, who frankly wouldn't spit on them if they were on fire. So I, I, I think he would have no problem doing it so long as there was something in it for him. And that was Andy Fleming and Cam Smith from Yana Passerin speaking to journalist Brandy Buckman covering the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. That was just an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you want to listen to the full interview, head to 3cr.org.au slash Yena Prasarin. Yena Prasarin is hap- happens every Thursday from 4.30 to 5pm, so you can tune in then to listen to their live segments. So, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. The 11th annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Locking your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter.
Uncover the depths of human connection and power in the new opera by Evan Lawson and Nicole Butcher, The Sea. This visceral exploration of love, lust and the corrupting influence of power in relationships washes over you in this extraordinary collaboration between Forest Collective and BK Opera. The Sea plays from the 7th until the 10th of December at Abbotsford Convent. Tickets available from forestcollective.com.au. Forest Collective is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR. As some of you may know out there, today is Trans Day of Remembrance, which is a day which honours uh, the lives lost to transphobic violence and discrimination. We are here live with Jackie Turner, who is the director of the Trans Justice Project, to talk about the day and, and what it means for trans people. Hi, Jackie. Hey, how are you going? Good, thanks. Um, Jackie, we did speak a few months ago about uh, the Trans Justice Project's Fueling Hate report, which exposed just how common anti-trans hate is across the country. I'm wondering if you can just, first off, remind us of what that report found? Yeah, definitely. So we released the report um, a couple of months after the uh, tour earlier in the year by an anti-trans lobbyist. And... um, what we were looking at was how anti-trans violence uh, experiences of abuse, harassment and vilification had increased over the last three years, over the last one year and then over the last three months. Basically what we found was that anti-trans hate was escalating rapidly um, across Australia and that uh, experiences of abuse, harassment and vilification actually massively increased around the time um, of that um, anti-trans tour. So we can find that there's, um, you know, a correlation between those two events. Mm. And then we also found that um, anti-trans violence is unfortunately really widespread, with up to 15% of participants reporting, trans participants um, reporting that they had actually experienced violence in the last year. Mm. Wow. Okay. Today is, um, as well as Trans Day of Remembrance, uh, it is also World Children's Day, which marks Mm. the adoption of UNICEF's Convention on the Rights of Children. Do you think you could speak more to about um, life, what life is like for trans and gender diverse youth? Yeah, look, I think that one of the things to remember with this stuff is that we are living in one of the best times to be trans Mm. (laughs) um, in history, as well as one of, um, um, as well as a really challenging time. So Mm. I think what always comes to me on Trans Day of Remembrance is that, you know, this day was started in 1999, Mm. um, you know, 23, 24 years ago now. And I know that even the generation of trans people before me weren't able to, many of them weren't able to feel honest, um, to be open about who they were um, with the people around them, um, mm. whether they had transitioned, whether they were, um, you know, living um, a life where they um, were, you know, like unable to transition or whatever it was. So I think one of the things that I um, that comes back to me around this time is like thinking about actually how being a young person in this environment with all of these trans people who are out in the media, you know, talking openly mm. online, um, where there are lots of um, real life and online communities that support um, trans people, is that, yeah, there's there's a lot more out there than 
has been in the past, which is awesome. Obviously, we're also dealing with um, an organised anti-trans lobby that's working to roll back a lot of these advances, mm. um, you know, trying to turn back the clock on our rights, our access mm. to healthcare, um, our safety as well. Yeah. And I think that the message of something like Trans Day of Remembrance is that, you know, these things have come at a cost, right? Like mm. our struggle for justice and freedom has cost lives. And we need to be doing all that we can um, to make sure that we keep the next generation of trans people safe, that they grow up in an environment where they're able to thrive and um, have the freedom to be themselves. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, Jackie. Do you think, obviously, um, Trans Day of Remembrance comes after the Trans Week of Awareness? Um, I'm wondering if you think that, you know, obviously visibility of trans and gender non-conforming people has increased over the years, particularly mm. on social media. Do you think that um, enough focus is put on the difficulties and the cost of, you know, the, the struggle that we faced for visibility as opposed to the, I guess, the, the more positive aspects of um, having a world in which m- more people like us exist? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, I'm often focused on what's it going to take to change things. Mm. And um, we know that awareness and education are a really important part of what um, allows, um, you know, increased understanding and and empathy for marginalised communities. So, Mm. you know, in Australia, we know that a large portion of the community supports trans and diverse people to have the same rights and protections as everyone else. Um, it's 78% of Australians believe that, but actually only 11% of people know someone who is trans and, like, know someone well, so, like, has a friend or a family member. Mm. And it means that they just have this real lack of familiarity with what it means to be trans that makes them really vulnerable to disinformation and lies. And I think that that means that, um, you know, and we know that when people are actually know someone well who is trans, that they're much more likely to support us. Um, and... Um, and our rights. And so, you know, a key strategy of ours does still have to be awareness and visibility and education because that's what's going to close that gap Mm. um, on the support. Like, that's what's going to bring people on board. That's what's going to turn people who um, maybe don't know anything about trans people and might be vulnerable to these lies from the anti-trans lobby. Mm. That's what's going to cement them in as really strong allies. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, isn't it, where... Mm. You know, we need those things, but also it does cause backlash and it does mean that the people who, um, you know, are active opponents of trans people's freedom are going to use that as a platform to target and harass us. Yeah, yeah, of course. And you mentioned before that Trans Day of Remembrance has existed since 1999. Mm. Can you speak to sort of how it's, it's changed over the years? Yeah, so in 1999, it was very much started as a memorial for trans people who had uh, been murdered. Um, So Mm. over the years in Australia, its meaning has changed um, to be a bit more, um, uh, I guess, uh, about like trans people we've lost over the last year. And Mm. so, you know, we have... We unfortunately have a very high suicide rate in the, in the trans community. 
and a large part of this is because of the discrimination um, that we face that you know makes it harder to get a job it's harder to gain access to housing um, it's harder you know you're more likely to be exposed to family violence and intimate partner violence and we know that all of these things are drivers of suicide and poor mental health mm. so I think a lot of the work in Australia has um, been thinking about you know how do we make this a day where we remember all the people that we've lost, not mm. just to physical violence, but also to um, the kind of violence of everyday life that many trans people still endure. Yeah, of course. And how do you, and just a little bit of a more personal question, but how, mm. how, how do you particularly spend the day? Like, Yeah, I, um, I'll be going along to one of the vigils. There are vigils that mm. are happening all over the country. Uh, so if you check out T T D O R, if you just Google that, um, it should come up with a website run by um, mm. Transgender Victoria that keeps a list of all the Trans Day of um, Remembrance uh, vigils. But I'll be heading along to one of them. I think for me, um, one of the people that always comes to my mind was someone who had supported me and was a really good friend of mine. Um, very early on in, like, my 20s. Mm. And I didn't know, um, like, neither of us ever talked about being trans. Um, They were a bunch older than me and everything, but I found out after they passed away that that they were trans as well. And I wish that we'd had been able to to talk about that at the time, but I think, you know, it's part of the way that society was at that time that... Mm. You know, we didn't feel like we could be honest with each other yet and um, reach out to each other. Um, so, yeah, I will be spending the day remembering them and, um, yeah, and, and, and being a part of the um, vigil that's happening in Sydney. Yeah, wow. Wow. Thank you for your vulnerability, Jackie. Um, no, no worries. I just have one final question just um, about sort of data of existing you know outside of the gender binary i'm i'm hesitant to use the word um trans relating to you know like going back in time before you know the the word was adopted and used pretty commonly but is there is there anything you know sort of about data about like gender non-conforming people you know you know over time in Australia? So Noah Reisman has just released a really good book. Um, uh, it's called Transgender History. Um, mm. Oh, wait, it might be called Australian Transgender History. Sorry, I'm just looking for my copy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> no, that's right. Um, and it's a history of um, gender non-conforming people um, in Australia. Mm. And, yeah, exactly right. You know, it's, it's hard to exactly pin down um, what someone may have identified as or how they might have expressed their identity mm. in a time that was more supportive mm. um, and was much less dangerous for them to be who they are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure of any kinds of statistics before that. I think the reality is is that um, the modern um, sort of you know tracking of, of data, of murder statistics and of advocacy using... Um, statistics on anti-trans abuse and harassment is still quite um, early in its infancy. But mm. we're seeing a lot of support from 
you know, major organizations now that um, are tracking these. We know that GLAAD in the U.S. Um, does a lot of work in tracking anti-trans violence and looking at mm. how they um, keep records um, on this stuff going forward so that you can actually start to look at it year on year yep. and look at how it goes up and down based on the political environment. Mm. Yeah, well, awesome. That's that's pretty much all we have time for, Jackie. Um, thank you very much. No worries. Could I just give one shout-out to mm-hmm. the Trans Day of Resistance that's happening on the 25th? Oh, as yes, well. absolutely. Yeah, so Trans Day of Resistance is happening on the 25th of November. There are events happening all around the country. Mm-hmm. I would strongly encourage people to go along and attend and, and be a part of it um, as well. Um, there's definitely one in a sitting near you. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. No worries. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Jackie Turner, uh, director of the Trans Justice Project, and we were just talking about Trans Day of Remembrance. As they mentioned, uh, there is a vigil. There are vigils happening across the country. Um, for those of you listening in Nam, there is one happening at the Fitzroy Library at 128 Moore Street in Fitzroy at 5 p.m. tonight. Now we're going to go into a song. This is called Give Me the Flute by Hosem Hayek. Thank you. 
listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Next up, we'll be bringing a special extended interview with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. The UN's Palestine expert, Francesca Albanese, is visiting Australia this week amid continued trauma and bloodshed in Gaza and Israel and rising tensions between some Jewish and pro-Palestinian communities in Nam about personal safety, protest rights and the national government's stance on a ceasefire. Listeners who are following the crisis may be familiar with Miss Albanese. Uh, she was on Q&A on Monday night and she also made a national press address yesterday in Canberra. For those who aren't, uh, a brief introduction. Miss Albanese is a highly respected human rights lawyer, researcher and author who has worked for over 20 years as a human rights expert for the United Nations. She has advised the UN, governments and civil society across the Middle East, North Africa and the Asia-Pacific on the enforcement of human rights norms, especially for vulnerable groups, including refugees and migrants. In 2022, Ms Albanese was appointed as United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories. She is the author of Palestinian Refugees in International Law and holds a number of advisory and research positions at think tanks and academic institutions. She is visiting Australia as a guest of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, where she delivered the annual Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture on Saturday. I was fortunate to speak with her about her role in the current political and humanitarian crisis. And a warning to listeners, this segment discusses the subject of war, loss of life and suffering, which might be distressing. Let's take a listen. Before we speak about the current situation in Gaza and Israel, can you please clarify for our listeners, what is the role of an United Nations Special Rapporteur? Sure, uh, thank you, Claudia. Uh, a special rapporteur of the United Nations uh, is an independent expert appointed by the Human Rights Council of the UN uh, to uh, report to the United Nations on specific violations occurring um, in connection with a given topic, for example, human rights defenders, uh, right to food, access to health, or international violations occurring in a given country. Uh, this is my case. I have a country mandate, um, um, and uh, so I'm due to report to the United Nations on the international law violations occurring in the occupied Palestinian territory, namely the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, that Israel has occupied uh, since 1967. And in this role, it's an independent role. How difficult is it to act impartially in this role? It is an independent role, and in fact, we do serve in a honor, in a honorary capacity. So we are considered. I mean, we are um, UN uh, experts. So we are bound by uh, UN rules, but we have the independence of not not being uh, UN employees, for example. Um, it's, this mandate is particularly challenging because, uh, and this is not something related to the current event, it's always like this. There are a lot of emotions, conflicting narratives, um, and, uh, and also, um, hmm, I, I mean, I've, I've experienced it a lot. There is a, 
uh, also a lot of misinformation that then translates into personal attacks against anyone who dares um, criticizing the the position of, of Israel is very easy to be uh, accused of anti-Semitism because there is a conflation of criticism to the state of Israel and anti-Semitism, which I find very dangerous. But again, these are the, these are the main challenges, uh, together with two very important ones, that the situation on the ground is very violent. I've, I've really struggled portraying the full picture of what was happening in the occupied Palestinian territory. What I've seen happening over 16 months of my uh, of my mandate, me, me being on the mandate, and uh, and also it's very difficult because Israel um, prevents me, as it has done with my predecessors, professors Richard Falk and Michael Link, uh, from entering the occupied Palestinian territory in violations with its obligations as a UN member state. So it's also very difficult to access uh, the information firsthand, but Again, this is circumvented by the fact that there are so many uh, excellent monitors on the ground, Palestinian and Israeli human rights organizations and international human rights organizations. Plus, I've, I've lived in the occupied Palestinian territory, so it's, um, the, the reality on the ground is, uh, is something I'm very familiar with. But, of course, I would like to be in a greater proximity with the victims, both, I mean, first and foremost, the Palestinians, who are the victimized one under Israeli occupation, but also uh, many Israelis who stand in solidarity with them and against apartheid and against occupation, and I'm very close to. So, I, I mean, it would be different to have the opportunity to go to, uh, to the field and work uh, with them. So let's just pause there because that's a really significant uh, statement that you have made. Your role is to report on the situation in these occupied territories, but Mm -hmm. you yourself are not allowed to enter those territories. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's that's what you're saying. Yes. Yes. What what happens if you would try to enter the across the boundary? We will see because it's going to happen in the sense that I find very frustrating uh, that uh, Israel doesn't respond to requests for, because I informed them several times that I wanted to go, that I intended to go. Last year, I had worked for months with Palestinian and Israeli organizations to, to organize, to have a field visit uh, in, the, in Jerusalem and the, the West Bank. And I knew that it would have been very difficult to enter Gaza and also the Egyptian authorities have not been very responsive. So um, I prepared everything and then Israel, the Israeli authorities said that no, I had to delay, that they would give me uh, authorization to enter and it never happened. So I had to turn all those all those meetings into virtual tours that both Israeli and Palestinian organizations gave me. They took me through places with a mobile phone. I held town hall meetings with, uh, with tons of people, but uh, um, uh, via, via Zoom. And same thing, think, for example, that this summer I've been writing a report on uh, the situation of children under occupation because half of the population under occupation is uh, under 18 year old. And I've been having Zoom meetings every other day uh, with groups of kids. Now, you know, it's been very, very difficult, but also very fulfilling because these young creators are fantastic. You know, it's painful for me to say that most of those I've interviewed are no longer with us. I am so sorry. Yeah, painful. Where were you when you learned of the Hamas attack on October 7th? 
And what was your reaction? Yeah, it's, uh, this shows also how difficult this is because I'm, I'm not only a lawyer, I'm not only a special rapporteur who, uh, who's often to take time off her job uh, in order to serve this mandate. I'm also a mother of two young kids and I travel a lot and I had just returned home from uh, weeks of being busy writing the report and traveling. I had just returned from Europe and I live in Tunisia and this was the only weekend I had taken to go somewhere with my family, with my kids. And then on a Sunday morning, um, someone called me and said, are you seeing what's happening in uh, in Israel? And I turn on the news and I see, yeah, my reaction was I was, I was shocked. I knew in that very moment that nothing good would have come out because even without even knowing how many uh, victims a Hamas uh, attack on Israel had provoked, had done, I knew that the reaction would be fierce. So this has been my feeling. And then for me, Claudia has been, it has been, like for many, huh? like a, a, a one long day that started on the 7th of October and there has been very little respite and of course the sense of powerlessness and the sense of uh, of really the, the, the huge pain uh, that goes with uh, with it is uh, is unspeakable i've never i've in my 20 years of uh, of professional engagement i've never felt uh, this level of distress because what's going on under our watch is absolutely unprecedented and unless a ceasefire is declared, but now, now immediately, it's already late. Ten thousand, over, I mean, eleven thousand people have been killed. Seventy uh, percent of them are women and children. Almost five thousand of them are children. I mean, we should really see the humanity, the distressed humanity, the devastated humanity behind this, these figures, and the fact that even, especially in the West, there is no, not only there is no empathy no sympathy, no no connection, no much connection. I mean, I wouldn't say b- between the people and what's going on to the pal- with the Palestinians, but really the political leadership, there is a dehumanization of the Palestinian that uh, travels across the, the globe and particularly in the West, and I find it very, 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 very disappointing and discouraging. Yes. Now, Israel claims its counterattack on Gaza is an act of self-defence, and this view is supported by a number of Israel's allies, including Australia. Yes. You don't agree with this view. What no. is your view? No, no, I don't agree because it's really wrong. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm very happy to also see that there has been, uh, there, there were reactions uh, among the, I understand, I've not seen it myself, but if, if this is the case, um, I mean... So um, no, no. The the uh, the claim that uh, Israel has a legitimate or an inherent right to self-defense is uh, absolutely wrong. Because, and I know that it's counterintuitive. So, to the benefit of the people who are listening to us, let me explain, Claudia. Um, of in in common parlance. The right to self-defense is, uh, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's normal. Of course, the right, it, it's almost a synonymous with uh, right to protect itself, which, of course, Israel has. Israel has the sacrosanct right to protect itself, its territory, its citizens, and uh, these go, this cannot be challenged. At the same time, under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, 
uh, self-defense means something very specific. It's a legal term of art and means the right to wage a war, which is only justified in response to an attack or an imminent threat of an attack coming from another state and uh, so not an armed group but of course on this one the doctrine is very divided and also the state practice because is, um, the United States for example have pushed for another interpretation when they attacked Iraq when they attacked Afghanistan at the same time the supreme organ of the um, the supreme judicial organ of the United Nations has, is very clear about that the, the threat must emanate from the state but this is not not even the relevant point here. It's a, the ICJ says that the right to self-defense cannot be claimed against uh, the people Israel occupies. An occupying power has a duty to protect and has law and order responsibilities um, under the, um, the Hague Conventions and Regulations in the territory it occupies. This is the legal framework that should have been applied. So yes, Israel had the right to uh, to propel, uh, to, sorry, to repel the attack, uh, had the right to uh, neutralize the danger, to arrest and detain and the, the, the people who had uh, um, attacked it, and at the same and, and pursue justice, of course, for its victims because war crimes were committed. Now, even resistance has limits. Uh, so the Palestinian people have the right to resist an oppressive regime, but they cannot target civilians. Uh, the civilians cannot be killed, intentionally killed. The civilian cannot be taken hostage. So this is crystal clear, and I don't aim to downplay or minimize or condone anything that Hamas militants have done. At the same time, the response that Israel gave is absolutely unlawful. And, and again, as a right to wage a war. And then think, Claudia, of the opaqueness of the, of the intent in this war, because it has not pursued a legitimate military target or a military target, which could have been destroying Hamas military capacity so that it doesn't harm us anymore or pursuing justice and ensuring that these people are uh, investigated, prosecuted, etc. No, it has, it has been destroying Hamas as Hamas is a political movement. Hamas is a political reality which has, uh, for good or not, uh, it has reigned over Gaza for 16 years and also thanks to Israel's uh, uh, policies. And, uh, and therefore, it has turned, I knew from the very beginning what would have happened, and in fact, I've raised the alarm, it has turned uh, into a, a wholesale war against, uh, against the civilian population of, uh, of the Gaza Strip. So there has been the destruction of almost 50% of the civilian infrastructure because Israel has carpet-bombed the Gaza Strip for 34 days now, uh, destroying residential buildings, hospitals, schools, uh, mosques, churches and every bit of civilian infrastructure, all the more, all the more tightening and already a lawful blockade, because there, there has been a blockade in Gaza for 16 years, during which there have been five wars, which had ma already made, um, I think, um, 4,000, for over 4,000 uh, civilians uh, killed, including over 1,000 children. So you see the level of destruction that already existed prior and trauma prior to the 7th of October. And now, I mean, with all this devastating death toll, how come, how come the international community struggles, particularly those in the West, with some exceptions, because I think, for, 
example, that that the huge protest in France managed, succeeded in pushing the um, the president uh, Macron to to call for a ceasefire eventually. And uh, this is this is the thing. I mean, how how the, the level of destruction in in Gaza is such that we can't even imagine what the day after it will be. But, uh, yeah, as I said, there is a total dehumanization of the Palestinians because if the political leaders, including in Australia, after 11,000 people dead and the total destruction of the Gaza Strip, um, while, the, the, as I was saying, the blockade has even been tightened all during all this bombing, Claudia, no food, no electricity, no medicines, and no essential supplies were allowed in. This might lead to intentional starvation. So we still don't know how many people died because of drinking contaminated water, because of uh, really starvation, because there is no food, because of not being able to be cured. There have been doctors operating in open air without uh, without electricity without anesthesia this is so brutal so brutal that was the first part of claudia craig's conversation with francesca albanese sorry the united nations special reporter on the human rights situation in the occupied palestinian territories as i said before that was the first part uh you can go back to the three cr website to listen to the full thing We'll be back shortly. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. VCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the World's Largest Coal Port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. One percent of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. So now... Today actually marks uh, as an important date, November 20th, as it celebrates the adoption of the most widely ratified human rights treaty in history, the Convention on the Rights of the Ch- of the Child. So joining me this morning is Bianca Gonis, who is the co-founder of Moms for Palestine, where we're going to be discussing about the Ribbons of Hope. Good morning, Bianca. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so lovely to have you. Um, yeah, hopefully the line doesn't cut off us suddenly or anything. So, Bianca, can we just first get to know about what is the, what is Moms, Pal- Moms for Palestine? Um, yeah, so we started... Sorry, I've got my son here. He's having a little moment. It's okay. Speaking of being a mom, um, we have started a group, an action group, um, predominantly online... Um, but we're, we're starting to get quite a lot of actions happening. Uh, we started a group for mums who feel like they need something accessible to contribute to the movement, um, but also just to have another voice calling out for ceasefire and the end to the um, violent occupation of Palestine. Um, we started a couple of weeks into the relentless bombing happening in Gaza, and we've built up, like, I don't know, more than over a 1,000 private members to a Facebook group. Um, and, we've, we've, yeah, we've been building um, countrywide. It's really exciting. Like, there's been lots of mothers from different states representing our group at marches and rallies. And 
building our campaign messaging um, in different states, which is really, really helpful to get us loud and um, speaking out to calling mm-hmm. a ceasefire. Yeah. Yep. And so it's World Children's Day and Mum for Palestine has organised what's called the Ribbons of Hope. So could you tell yeah. us what is that about? Yeah, so we came, um, one of our mums comes up with an idea to um, to a small action for mums everywhere to put the ribbons on their, like, children's prams or wherever, um, colours of the Palestinian flag and to take a photo of it and to hashtag our Mums to Palestine um, uh, Instagram account or um, and to say ceasefire. There's a small action, so we have lots of photos um, of people of, of um, people's stuff with ribbons on it um, and also to hashtag Senator Penny Wong just so she knows that there's a collective voice of mums from around uh, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so things like that, just small, accessible um, things for mothers who are busy with crying babies um, to do, um, you know, um, in their, in their day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And, um, yep. We're also... Presenting, we've also been gathering up like thousands of toys um, for the last mm-hmm. few weeks, building this art installation to represent all the children being murdered in Gaza. Um, which is being presented, which is being presented today at the Brunswick Town Hall um, as a part of another um, action for us um, at the. For World Children's Day, we're sort of coinciding it with, yeah, on World Children's Day to present the art installation um, mm-hmm. yep. at the town hall there. Yep, so is this uh, yeah. art installation only happening for today in regards to World Children's Day, or is it happen? Or is it going to be put up for the whole week? And we're hoping it will be, yeah, put up for at least today, but, um, I think it's confirmed potentially for tomorrow. But yeah, we'd like to, we'd like it there for as long as possible. But we're just negotiating. So definitely today. Um, I think there might be tomorrow. Um, but yeah, we're, we're we'd like to put it somewhere permanently. But these things are always tricky because of um, permits and things like that. So it would be good for us to have it permanently. We don't have like our name on it. It's just it's just an action to bring awareness to the children killed, particularly on World Children's Day. Um, but yeah, we, we don't, you know, there's going to be lots of photos taken of it um, to share as like a protest image, an awareness um, campaign. So yeah, hopefully it gets around so people can see it anyway. Yeah. Mm, I see. And in, in regards to uh, furthermore and ribbons of hope for uh, in re- and about the ribbons that are going to be used, that obviously the colours chosen for it are the red, green, white, and black because that's the significant colours of the Palestinian flag. Do you know what yeah. each of the colours actually mean? Um, they, I think they represent 
um, um, liberation for Palestine. I'm not sure exactly what they mean. Like people have said different things to me, so I'm, I'm not. I haven't gotten confirmation, but like I know that they're the same colours as a watermelon, which is symbolic to Palestine in their liberation historically. Um, so yeah, you might like yeah. I'm yeah, I'm not a hundred percent, but I know that they are their liberation colours. Yeah, a bit like Aboriginal colour flags. Similar to that, from what I understand, like they've used them as liberation colours for a long time. Yep. So be- yep. So basically, the ribbons are. The, the, the colors are chosen because they represent the Palestinian flag, and so with this, it shows the support and solidarity in regards yeah. to the situation. Yep, no worries. Yeah, yeah. So, is there is there is there a reason why you specifically chose to go for ribbons? Like, how how has ribbons helped to f- will help foster solidarity and allow people to raise awareness about the situation happening in Gaza? Um, I think it's particularly for our group, we have, um, you know, mums who have, um, are unable, like myself, to just go to a rally with a, you know, energetic two-year-old. Um, so so we've come up with something that's accessible for mothers to do, um, put the Palestinian flag colours on a pram or a nappy bag or your children's backpack or um, on something and then take a photo of it and hashtag ceasefire on Palestine send us a penny one <laughs> um, so we can um, show solidarity and raise awareness about what's going on and what we're calling for as a collective voice so it's just yeah it's a more but impactful act if a lot of people do it. Mm, I see. And it's accessible for mothers um, during, yeah. Yep, lovely. And, day to day. Oh, yeah. That's lovely, Bianca. Um, so, Bianca, unfortunately, you're going to be running out of time soon, but I just want to get one last question. Uh, just again, like, uh, what? Any are there any other ways people can get involved in Ribbons of Hope? Or is it just on making sure we get ribbons and also keep uh, relaying a message to Penny Wong? Yeah, so the Ribbons for Hope is particularly for today, World Children's Day. Um, yeah, so hashtagging your photo with your ribbons, um, whatever you've got your ribbons on, is um, particularly today's campaign. Um yeah, if you're a mum and you'd like to join our group to see what other actions we're doing, um, please let us know. Um, so please join us on, on Facebook. And um, anybody can follow us on Instagram so you can see what we're doing. Um, but yeah, we we offer, we do we do gather for rallies in cities, so we all sort of find meeting spots so that's why the Facebook group is good um, and we have been visiting the sit-in at Parliament Steps which happens every day from 9 till 9pm um, by um, a group and we as mothers visit on Fridays at 5pm on Friday, um, 
the, the tournament steps. So we do a few things. We also have a wellbeing Zoom chat once a week for mothers wanting to sort of express how they're feeling and their grief, looking at what's going on every day, the slaughtering of children and families on scale. Like, this is just horrific. So we often um, get together and chat and and um, give each other, like, a space to just feel heard and safe talking about these things because a lot of people in society are, like, quite... Um, crazy neutral on this stuff and it's not easy to talk to everyone, other mums or particularly other family members might have various views of, on on what's going on and the Israel army and stuff. So, yeah, just a safe space for people to feel like we're, we're all um, in this trying to create awareness together. Yeah. Mm, yep, definitely. <laughs> And yes, it's also it's actually also harder because for many mums out there, we have to take care of the children as well. So, yep, it's yep, really, really brave and amazing of all the mums out there right now, and for yep. you as well, Bianca. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have my I have my child, so I might have to go. Um, yep. Awesome. Yep. Thank you so much, Bianca. It's been lovely having you. No worries. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. And that was Bianca Gonis, the co-founder of Moms for Palestine. Moms for Palestine is a grassroots action group of moms working together to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and create awareness about the century-old occupation of Palestine that has resulted in systemic human rights violations of Palestinians living there. They actually represent women who believe all children deserve to live in peace and grow, learn, play, develop and flourish with dignity. These are the rights of children under the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child, the most right, widely ratified human rights treaty in history. And yes, this is celebrated on World Children's Day today. Well, Moms for Palestine provides a safe space for women who wish to take action. If you want to follow them on Instagram, you can ta- you can search for at Moms for Palestine. And on Facebook, you can look for Moms for Palestine Action Group. So for today... Basically, how to get involved is just take a ribbon of any colors of the Palestinian flag, whether is it red, green, white, and black. And actually, I've just uh, I was just searching up to understand the meanings of the ribbons, just so our listeners can know a bit more what what each color holds a deep meaning of. So red actually symbolizes the the bloodshed and the struggles for freedom. Green stands for the land and agriculture of Palestine. White represents the peace the Palestinian people have long hoped for. And lastly, black signifies the mourning for the lives lost in the conflict. So you can yep, just wear any of these colours of the ribbons for today and take a photo and share to your social platforms. Tag Moms for Palestine and the hashtags. Hashtag ceasefire now. Hashtag Moms for Palestine. Hashtag ribbons of hope. Hashtag World Children's Day. And hashtag Wolf for Every Child. We'll put more of these in the show notes so our listeners can be able to have a guide of what to do later. So, yeah. So And, and of course, uh, also to remind you that the uh, best way, well, a, a way to call to help uh, the push for a call for ceasefire is to contact your local MP and actually just say to them, like, to call for a ceasefire and the Australian government needs to to do better in 
standing for calling for a ceasefire. Yep. And again, there's also another event for the Palace, for the Palestine event today. It's happening from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. This is the healthcare workers for Free Palestine. So it's, a, it's going to be happening at Iver's Reserve. It's at Flemington Road between RCH and RMH in Parkfield. So yeah, that's all our sh- all we got for our show today. Yep. So what are you looking forward to for the week, Rob? Um, good question. Um, yeah, I'm going to be attending a vigil for Trans Day of Remembrance tonight. Um, it's a big day. Um, and then later this week, as Jackie mentioned before, I'll probably be at the Trans Day of Resistance protest rally on Saturday. Um, it's also, there's a slut walk, uh, rally as well on the, in the morning before, I believe. Um, we'll, sh- we'll share the, the, the info for those in the notes later when the show goes online. Um, but more generally, like, uh, I just started a, a new job, so I'm, back like planting trees full-time every day again which is pretty much why i've just been so tired lately because it makes everything else just such a slug you know um and yeah it's just continuing my like weightlifting ahead of like my competitions in less than a month now so yeah just focus on those two things pretty much how about you yeah um I feel like for this week, I'm as usual just going to be working on my part-time job and mm. just trying to have fun at the same time. Yep. But also I'll just consciously make sure I'm just be on social media and mm. on the news just to be, just to continue be aware of what's going on. Yeah. So, and we also going to be having a 16 days of activism event coming up. So yes. uh, this is actually an international campaign, but f- uh, for here at 3CR, we're going to be doing a 16 days worth of topics and interviews with people in regards mm. to whatever specific days mm. we are going to be having a segment related to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be starting from this Saturday, 25th November, mm-hmm. until the 9th of December. So, yep, for these 16 days of activism, each day we'll have a certain events specially related to to discuss and talk about so yeah you, you can stay tuned to each of these days starting from 25th november and yeah monday will also bring you something in regards to this yeah so well you've been listening to 3cr 855 am this has been grace and rob you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.